I've had this great fortune of being associated with hundreds of people that I've been able to infect with that kind of curiosity. And collectively, we've learned all kinds of things about Mother Nature, just as it's played out in this one little obscure virus um, that we studied because I thought it would be so neat to ask Mother Nature about that one little bug. And I'm so glad I did. Hello and welcome. I'm Bruce Seat, and you're listening to the Science to Business Network podcast, a show dedicated to showcasing the stories, advice, and insights of individuals who are working at the interface of science, innovation, and business. We'll hear their journeys and how they're using science to change the world. We hope these stories will inspire you and provide you a sense of the wonder and the possibilities of science and the diversity of opportunities and careers to make a meaningful impact. 40 years ago, smallpox, which killed up to half a billion people in the last century alone, was certified eradicated by the World Health Organization. We've therefore invited renowned pox virus researcher Dr. Grant McFadden to join us through Zoom from his home in Arizona. Grant started his academic career in Canada, studying how pox viruses hide from the immune system. But his focus has recently shifted towards using pox viruses as cancer therapies. In addition to his remarkable scientific career and having served as the past president of the American Society for Virology, he has also served as an expert in the World Health Organization's decision on whether remaining smallpox virus should be destroyed. Grant is also an entrepreneur having co-founded two companies around his research, the latest of which is Oncomix, a biotech focused on developing viral-based immunotherapies to treat cancer. We'll hear Grant's journey through academia, as well as his entrepreneurial efforts, which seek to redeploy pox viruses towards helping humanity. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Grant McFadden. Hi, Grant. Welcome to the Science to Business Network podcast. It's great to have you here on the show to talk to you about your scientific journey that has spanned the worlds of academia and entrepreneurship. Well, hey, Bruce. Uh, it's great to talk to you. As you indicated, I've had a career in both academics uh, and with impinging with uh, business and spinoffs. And I'm happy to tell you about some of the things I've learned and, and maybe thought about. Why don't we start with where you grew up and what were you like when you were growing up? I'm a Canadian, as people who listen to my accent will always tell me. I grew up in Ontario, but I kind of regard Montreal as my home because I moved there to go to high school and then later to go to McGill University, where I did a bachelor's in biochemistry. And that was kind of my launching point uh, into my career and into science. In a recent interview, you mentioned that you were actually interested in studying astrophysics. How did you end up studying biochemistry instead at McGill University? Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, when I went to university as an undergraduate, uh, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do, what my career would be like, if I'd even have a career. I just literally was wandering in a Brownian motion kind of fashion into university. And when I arrived, I, I had a couple of interests that I thought might grab me, and one of them was astrophysics. But uh, I didn't know if I had a professional interest or it was just like a hobby interest or I was just curious. But when I went to McGill, 
I found I got kind of interested in biology and ended up going into honors biochemistry. And uh, when I was in that program, I kind of had to decide, do I, do I want to go down a path of biology or do I want to go down a path of physics? And I wasn't really sure which to do, but I got some advice from someone. I can't remember who it was, someone at university said, if you're trying to decide between the two, look at the, the, the expertise where you are and pick the people that are the best at what they do in the world. And as it turned out, the biochemistry department at McGill at the time was one of the world's top biochemistry departments. And so that was what kind of led me to go into biochemistry and then later to do my PhD in biochemistry. Uh, when it came time to choose what my field would be, uh, McGill had just hard, uh, recruited a very famous bacteriophage biologist, a guy named David Denhart, to come to McGill. And so I was kind of intrigued, went to see him and got kind of interested in studying phage. And that's how I ended up in doing my PhD in bacteriophage, a bacteriophage called Phyx-174. It was a little bit accidental. It was a little bit of Brownian motion, but it ended up setting the, the, the arc of my career. Your scientific career shifted when you did your postdoc. You went away from bacteriophage to pox viruses. How did you go about choosing your postdoc and what attracted you back to London? You went to Western for your postdoc and to work with Dr. Sam Dales. Well, again, uh, there's a lot of accidents and serendipity and Brownian motion. <laughs> um, so wh when I finished my PhD, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. Uh, studying phage was fantastic, but somehow I, I just didn't think that phage was my calling. Uh, I thought that the future belonged to eukaryotic cells and cells with nuclei and, and possibly things to do with eukaryotic uh, systems. But I didn't really know uh, what aspect would interest me. And initially, I thought I wanted to go into somatic cell genetics. And I tried to arrange a postdoctoral fellowship in Sweden at the Karolinska Institute to work on somatic cell genetics. Um, but it turned out the money fell through. I couldn't go. And uh, when that happened, I was a bit bummed out because uh, I was kind of hoping that I'd have my postdoc in Europe. Uh, and went sniffing around for what kind of postdocs might be available in North America. And around that time, and again by accident, uh, someone told me that this very famous pox virologist, a guy named Sam Dales, was just in the process of moving his lab from New York uh, where he was in the New York Public Health Labs, uh, to the University of Western Ontario, as it was called back then, in the Department of Microbiology. So I wrote to Sam and said, I'm looking for a postdoc, and I don't know very much about pox viruses at all, but if he was looking for a postdoc in his new lab in uh, London, Ontario, uh, I, I'm available and would be interested. He wrote right back to me and said, yeah, let's talk. And so I met him. And even though I knew very little about what I was getting into, it turned out to be a seminal time in my career. Because as it turned out, uh, I did my postdoc post working on vaccinia virus. 
which is the uh, vaccine strain for smallpox. And I got hooked on pox viruses. I just thought they were awesome. Uh, they're large double-stranded DNA uh, containing viruses. They've got huge genomes, for at least for viruses. And I just thought that they, they were fantastic. I just became fascinated by them. And when it came time for me to look for my own job, I decided to uh, look around for a pox virus that no one else was really doing much work with at all. Why did you focus on these viruses, especially myxomavirus? So while I was doing my postdoc, I received a lot of advice from many people that when I set up my own lab, I should carry on my projects that I did as a postdoc. In other words, take my vaccinia experience and set up a lab on vaccinia. But I, I, I always had a contrarian streak to me, and I always thought my job was to explore new territory, not, not just to continue doing what I was doing before. So it was my efforts to try and find a new direction that was different from my postdoc that led me to look at other pox viruses that were not vaccinia that maybe were interesting biologically or interested me in some way. And my first uh, attempt was with, actually with molluscum contagiosum, human pox virus. It's a fascinating virus. Uh, it grows in people, but it's restricted to people. And the only reason I didn't pursue it in my new lab is I couldn't figure out how to grow the virus in the lab. I couldn't find a tissue culture system. I couldn't find a cell it would grow in. It would only grow in human skin. And I thought to study it in the laboratory, that made it a very difficult proposition. Uh, if I always had to rely upon patients coming into the clinic, it would all be very, very hard to study as a scientific system. And so I began to look around for other pox viruses that would grow in the lab and, and would give me the freedom to kind of ask whatever questions I wanted to, to, to look at. And it was really reading the literature that got, brought me into contact with the rabbit pox viruses. And I just got fascinated by them. They're trapped in rabbits. Some of them are benign, uh, but one of them, myxoma, has a very interesting history in virology. Australians had grabbed it to try and kill uh, wild rabbits in Australia. And yet we knew very little about it as a virus. We knew it was a pox virus, but we didn't know what was in the genomes. We didn't know what its molecular biology was all about. And I just thought that was just so fascinating in terms of biology. And I thought I could tackle it based on what I'd learned in, in uh, vaccine virus. So that's what kind of led me to uh, set up my very first lab and my first job on rabbit pox viruses. And as you know, I've remained with them to this very day. <laughs> Definitely. There seems to be some serendipity involved in your scientific path. You were initially looking at viral replication and stumbled into uncovering how these viruses can systematically engage the host immune system. Can you describe some of the key findings and contributions the lab made around the time? So when I first began uh, my lab, uh, we knew uh, the rabbit pox viruses were pox viruses. We could take pictures of them under electron microscope. We knew they had DNA. And one of the first things we did was to pull out their DNA and do what were called restriction enzyme maps. 
or you cut them with a restriction enzyme and you ask what fragments came out and you can compare like different viruses from each other in terms of the restriction mass. And then as we were doing that, I got kind of fascinated by uh, the replication of the virus as it relates to the very ends of the genome, which in the case of pox viruses are hairpins, which means that the pox virus genome is very much like a huge single strand circle, except all the internal middle part of it folds into a double, perfect double helix. It's kind of an interesting structure. And I got very interested in biologically, why would a virus do that? Uh, how does it replicate the ends of the DNA? What are the implications for uh, the general replication cycle? So my lab kind of started out on that. But as we were progressing, um, the ability to sequence DNA was now coming online. And uh, we started sequencing the virus, the genome, to see what was in it. And it turned out that as we were doing that sequencing, we started uncovering genes that were looked really kind of curious. They looked less like virus genes and more like host immune genes or genes that would come from the immune system of a vertebrate host. So we started finding genes that looked like growth factors and then looked like versions of cytokine receptors and then as we uh, sort of sifted through them, the, the idea kind of evolved that the virus has its own kind of encoded immune system, but in some ways it was designed to antagonize the immune system of the host. And after a couple of years, we started calling this the virus anti-immune system because its function and its purpose was to antagonize or to modulate the immune pathways of the infected host. And this was kind of a, an, another turning point in, in my career and, and the arc of my lab. And I began to move away from replication uh, projects and more and more into uh, what we called our anti-immune projects, which involved looking at specific viral genes, what the encoded products are, what were they? What did they do? What, what did they interact with? And as we studied them, I, I came to realize that these viruses were actually very sophisticated uh, entities. They really knew the immune system of the hosts that they infect. And they had, it turned out to be dozens and dozens of genes whose products was merely to provide protection of the virus from clearance by the host immune system. And so uh, as we started studying these, that started a fascination in me that, that continues to this very day. Can you explain why pox viruses have come up with such elaborate ways to evade the immune system? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it really begs, why are some viruses like this and some viruses are like that? Why are some big? Some are in terms of viruses, meaning they encode hundreds of genes. And why are some small, encode only a tiny number of genes? And over time, I've kind of realized that it, it, it's hard to generalize, but every virus has to survive by its own strategies. And by that, I mean, every virus has to, uh, if it's going to live in a vertebrate host, for example, has to cope with the fact that vertebrate hosts have innate immune pathways and acquired immune pathways. And uh, so how do you adapt to that? How, how do you 
compensate for the fact that a virus is, has to struggle against all of these antagonizing pathways in a host. And I've kind, kind of come to realize that there are multiple different ways that viruses can overcome that hurdle or, or, or that antagonism. One way is to run and hide from the immune pathways. And many viruses are really good at that, that they have learned uh, where the different pathways are and they've learned to kind of circumvent them, to, to bypass them, to, to, to become as invisible as possible or as stealthy as possible. But some viruses, for reasons that aren't totally obvious to me, have decided they're not going to run and hide from the immune system. They're actually going to stand up and fight. And those viruses tend to have larger genomes, but they use those gene products to specifically allow them to stand up and fight. And uh, the big DNA viruses, and I'm thinking you know, of the pox viruses and the herpes viruses, are really good at the strategy. They encode dozens of genes that are, their function is merely to allow the virus to survive, even in the face of a direct attack or antagonism by immune pathways of the host. It's those viruses that have the greatest number of what we call anti-immune genes. Um, so in the case of the viruses we study, the pox viruses, about half of the genome is devoted to these anti-immune strategies. And the other half is devoted to just making virus, to making more copies of the virus. And so it turns out that every pox virus is quite different from each other in terms of these anti-immune genes, but very similar to their uh, sisters and their cousins in terms of their housekeeping genes. Mm. And I've gotten very fascinated by these anti-immune repertoire of genes and uh, my career is actually focused on them as they're expressed and made in a rabbit pox viruses. After 16 years at the University of Alberta, you came back to Western in London, Ontario, joining the Department of Microbiology and Immunology in 1997. And you started your first biotech company around that time using the concepts of this immune evasion strategy approach by the viruses. Can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, so that actually began uh, when my lab was in Edmonton. As we started uncovering these anti-immune genes, one of the things we did in the lab was to use recombinant DNA technology to knock these genes out of the virus, to ask what happens to the virus? What's the consequence? And what we found is that when you knock out most of these anti-immune genes out, uh, the virus grows perfectly well in tissue culture, and we don't really see an impact uh, when we just study it in cultured cells in the laboratory. However, when we take those viruses and put them into a host, and in our case, the only host uh, known were, were rabbits, what happened uh, was that the virus would be crippled and would now be subject to attack and clearance by the immune system of the infected rabbit. So we came to study this strategy, the, the, how the virus was crippled or attenuated, and we came to realize that the inability of the virus to inhibit certain immune pathways allowed now the host to gain the ascendancy and clear the virus. 
So in other words, knocking out the anti-immune genes of the virus was teaching us about the immune pathways of the host, which ones were important and what they did. So as we were doing those experiments, we started characterizing the different knockouts in terms of how the virus was crippled. And some of those knockouts were crippled in a very interesting fashion. So one of them, the first where we actually characterized in great deal, was a virus-encoded serpent. And a serpent simply means serine protease inhibitor. So as we uh, studied the viral serpent, which is an inhibitor of the serine proteases, we came to realize that the virus was using this molecule as a drug to inhibit activated myeloid cells uh, of the host. So as we were doing these experiments, I was kind of looking at it from the perspective of a virologist and being kind of amazed that a virus could be so sophisticated that it would make specific drugs to inhibit immune pathways. But at the same time, my wife, Alex Lucas, she was running a lab and studying vascular biology. So she's a cardiologist. She's interested in heart disease and in vascular diseases. At the time, there was a lot of arguments about what kind of disease atherosclerosis was. And there were many people who thought that atherosclerosis was a cholesterol disease. But she was a believer, and, and uh, now it's generally accepted, that in fact, cholesterol was a, a side issue. What atherosclerosis really was, was a dis systemic disease of activated inflammatory cells. So at the time, she was looking for new drugs to treat heart disease and atherosclerosis that was driven by activated myeloid cells. And you can kind of see how this evolved. My lab was studying uh, an inhibitor drug made by a virus that inhibit vascular cells. The virus made it, to, made it to protect itself. But Alex was looking for new drugs to uh, inhibit the same pathways, but for a completely different purpose, having nothing to do with viruses, but everything to do with vascular disease. And so she had got the idea of taking some of these molecules that my lab was purifying and asked, could we treat atherosclerosis in the lab in animal models following what's called balloon angioplasty or stent implantation? Mm -hmm. And it turned out those experiments worked very well. Uh, and uh, we did those initially at the University uh, of Alberta, where that's where both of our labs were at the time. And so we filed for IP protection because at the time, you have to remember, I knew nothing about biotech. Neither of us really knew very much. But the uh, local IT office uh, uh, grabbed us and said, no, no, you have to file for you know, intellectual property protection. So we did. And it was around that time that... Uh, both she and I came to be recruited from the University of Alberta to what was then called the Robarts Research Institute at the University of Western Ontario. And the person who recruited us was a guy named Mark Kwasnatsky, and he was the director of the Robarts Research Institute at the time. And so what Mark said, uh, if you'll come and move your labs here, we'll help you uh, with the startup of a new company to try and develop your idea into uh, uh, actual uh, company and into clinical trials. And so Viron was not actually born technically until after we moved to the Robarts Research Institute. And uh, that institute and Mark got together the investors and, and the people we needed to support the company and get the funding, the, the, the money 
And then we licensed in the, the uh, technology that had been uh, IP filed uh, back at the University of Alberta. And that was the how Viron was formed. What was the learning curve like for you at that time? And what lessons did you take away from starting a business? Well, I would say the learning curve, the curve was vast <laughs> because I, I, I came from virtual complete ignorance of what companies are and what they do, what, what venture capital was, what IP was designed to do. And both Alex and I hopped on that learning curve. And uh, we learned kind of by experience, uh, a day at a time, by the evolution of the company and the various things we learned in the company. Uh, and it took years. Um, there's a lot to, there's as much to learn about biotech as there is to learn about academics. There's an enormous amount to learn. It never stops. Uh, you do get better at it as you learn more, but you never really get to learn at all. Uh, there's always the next you know, category of things that you really have to learn to do the job better. And if you don't learn it, you won't, don't do the job as well as you really need to do. So um, it's a learning curve that started then when Viron was formed. And I have to say, I'm still on it today. What advice would you give to academics who might be interested in starting a company? The first advice is that in order to develop anything in the biotech space or the pharma space or industrial space at all, you have to create ownership of intellectual property because if it's freely available to everyone, it's very hard to find investors to put their money into developing it if they can't own it. So the, the, the first thing you really need to learn is what IP, what intellectual property protection is and why you should pay attention. Most universities have got offices that help you to do that but there's no substitute from learning a little bit on your own as well. Because once you create IP property, then you create entities that uh, investment and capital and companies might or might not be willing to invest in if they see there, there's potential in uh, eventual generation of something, a product, an idea, something that can be commercialized. So uh, you need to learn some of the dynamics of intellectual property and, and its protection. You need to learn a little bit about is what you're doing in an academic lab, is it useful uh, or could it be useful? And here it's very hard for academics to see their own work clearly because we're all so embedded in what we do. Very hard to step back and actually see what it is we're doing and whether or not it has value. So you need help. And the best help are people that themselves have either had some experience in academics and in biotech and in commercialization and get advice from them. But if you do that and get advice that there's something here to pursue, then you kind of have to make the decision, do I want to devote my efforts to doing this or do I want someone else to do it? Some people just basically decant everything to other entities and let them develop it. Some people are kind of like me, uh, where I kind of kept a big foot in my academic lab and, and my processes, but I was willing to devote a, a, a portion of my time. 
some academics decide to give up the root of academic, to not become an academic anymore and become a full-time biotech person or full-time pharma person. And that's a decision that, you know, a number of my friends have made. But the one I made was to remain basically an academic, try and learn what I could from a biotech and support it, but to a, a limited degree. In other words, to keep my lab and academic profile and my research interests alive and going while I tried to support the development of the company. I'm curious about your mindset in starting in that first company. Did you have any apprehension or reservations about jumping into trying to commercialize this work? Or were you pretty excited by the prospect? Oh, uh, it's a little like having kids. Uh, you, uh, I had lots of apprehension. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and fortunately, I had enough expert help to keep me from making the fundamental killing errors that destroy a company. And I had apprehension about the balance between running my lab on the academic side and how much time I should spend on the biotech side. But, you know, uh, those of us that have kids, you get over your apprehension, you leap into the deep end of the pool, and all of a sudden you learn stuff that you never imagined that you were going to learn. And so in the case of Viron, that's what happened to Alex and I. Uh, when the company was launched, we ended up, both of us, learning all kinds of things about the company and about how they develop and what it means for academics. And I still have apprehension about the decisions I make to this day. But now that I've been down the road for actually a couple decades, I know that if you do your very best and try to make the best decisions you possibly can, you've maximized your chances of things working out. And it's a little like raising kids. Sometimes you get some things right and sometimes you get some things wrong. But if you do your very best at the job, that's really the best you can do. There's no magic way of knowing you did everything right because you didn't. You know, Some things you do right and some things you do wrong. But, but it, on the summation of things, if you can progress and your kids grow up well and, and you can keep companies alive and you can learn things along the way, then you've done the best you can. You spent nine years in London, still focused on pox virus subversion of the immune system. But towards the end of that time, you pivoted towards the idea that myxomavirus might be useful as a tool to fight cancer and continued that work when you moved to the University of Florida in 2006. Can you share what observations were leading you to pursue this avenue of research? Well, again, there was a lot of serendipity and accident because when I moved my the lab, from uh, Alberta to London, uh, I had I wasn't thinking of cancer at all. Uh, and and if you had told me that the virus that we were working in would one day be developed to treat cancer, I would have thought you were crazy. But a, a series of oddball things happened as I set up my lab and began to study the virus in London. One of them was that. Although the virus is trapped in rabbits in nature, and what, what by that I mean if you take this virus and inject it into any other animal other than a rabbit, it vanishes. That's true of mice, kangaroos, humans, doesn't matter. The virus can't, cannot compete because the immune system of those animals overwhelms the virus, in part because the toolkit, the genetic toolkit of the virus, was adapted to the rabbit immune system. So all of its tools are perfectly adapted to the rabbit immune system, 
but they're imperfectly uh, um, adapted to human or mouse or anything outside of a rabbit. And that's why the virus is crippled, is because it can't defend itself. So one of the things that I was very interested in doing is trying to understand what are the different immune targets that the various viral proteins had. And many of them, you have to understand, were new proteins. We didn't know what they are, what they did. They had no sequence in them that told us what, what it is they might be doing. And I was always very interested in what immune pathways are they talking to? What are they inhibiting? And uh, to do that, uh, uh, a technique that I always wanted to use was a technique called proteomics, uh, which uh, in the early days simply meant that you could take, uh, we can call it a probe, for me it was a viral protein, and find out what its binding partners were and if you can identify them, that tells you a little bit about the targets that the viral protein is inhibiting or, or affecting in the host. But to do that, to identify what's called a binding pair, you need to have the sequence of the host. And at the time, the sequence of a rabbit was not known. So we could identify on gels on, uh, by bands, rabbit proteins that stuck to different myxoma proteins, for example but we didn't know what they were and we couldn't identify them. But if we could do the same thing in human cells, by then the human sequence was known and uh, we could use mass spectrometry to identify what the binding partners were if they were from a human cell. And so I developed this hankering to see if I could find a human cell in which the virus would grow, myxoma virus, in order to identify binding partners so I could figure out what, what host targets the various viral proteins were sticking to and interacting with. But I, I, I didn't have any human cells to grow it in. And uh, so as it turned out, I was giving a seminar in uh, University of Ottawa and describing you know, my desire to do proteomics. And I was showing results from the lab indicating that we could convert, for example, most cells, which are normally non-permissive for this virus, become fully permissive by killing certain signaling pathways within the cell. And the signaling pathway that we were killing at the time was the interferon response pathway. So in other words, if we took a mouse cell that normally the virus would not grow in and killed the interferon response pathway in those cells genetically, now the cells would be permissive for the virus and it would behave phenotypically just like rabbit cells, which was kind of cool in the lab. But I wanted to do a similar thing in human cells and I, I didn't have an interferon minus human cell. I was giving a seminar at the University of Ottawa and uh, this guy came out of the audience to say uh, he had a collection of human cells that had different defects and different signaling pathways. And would I like to see if, if our rabbit virus would grow in any of them. And I thought, fantastic. That's exactly what I want. Because if we could find a human cell that the virus would grow in, then we could do proteomics. And then I could figure out what some of the pathways were. And so I said, that's great. What are those cells? And uh, he said, well, they're called human cancer cells. Uh, and it turned out uh, the guy was, uh, um, uh, his name was John Bell. And he'd been studying oncolytic viruses for years. And uh, he had a good sense of humor, so he was kind of reeling me into the field of oncolytic virotherapy, uh, which he did. 
because as time wore out, we got a bunch of those human cancer cells from him. And it turned out in the lab, the majority of them behaved phenotypically just like rabbit cells. Uh, our rabbit virus would get in, would replicate, kill them, make progeny, just like it does in rabbit cells. And that's what kind of led to the idea of, hmm, we've got a virus that's very safe in humans. It's harmless. We know that. You put it into human cancer cells and it, it treats them like rabbit cells and rabbit tissues. What would happen if we put this virus into a cancerous tissue in a mouse or a human? And so at the time, my lab had no cancer projects, and, and I knew very little about the field of oncolytic virotherapy at the time. I went sniffing around for people that were studying oncolytic viruses, and I was introduced to a guy in Calgary, a guy named Peter Forsyth, who was studying brain cancer, and he was studying different oncolytic viruses. And uh, so what Peter said was, why don't you send me some of your magic uh, virus?" And we sent him one that expressed EGFP, uh, green fluorescent protein. And, uh, and I told them, why don't you put it through your paces? Uh, see if you can treat mice that have uh, brain cancer. And so he took mice that had been xenografted with human glioblastoma. And so they were growing human glioblastomas in their brain. And uh, he stereotactically injected myxoma that expressed EGFP into these growing glioblastomas right into the mouse brain. And we just sat back to see what would happen. And what happened is that uh, myxoma virus grew in those tumors the way it does in rabbit tissues. And I knew a lot about the way this virus did in rabbit tissues at the time. And so I was kind of amazed at how similar the human glioblastoma was to rabbit tissues in terms of what the virus did. So the virus grew in those glioblastomas, eliminated all of them. Uh, when the glioblastomas vanished, the virus vanished because it no longer had cells to grow in because it it doesn't grow in mouse cells, normal mouse cells. We were able to cure all the mice of their glioblastoma. It was a complete home run. And I remember Peter calling me up and said, you know, this is the safest oncolytic virus I've ever tested in mice. We have to pursue this. And so this was kind of the turning point that convinced me, ah, there's something to this oncolytic virotherapy business, and maybe our virus could play a role in it. And that was kind of the turning point that eventually led to the uh, sending this virus into biotechnology as well. That's an amazing story. And it brings me to my next question. I noticed a few weeks ago that you've founded another company called Oncomix to develop myxomavirus as a cancer therapy. How did that come about? So like a lot of things in my life, uh, I kind of stumbled into it a bit. I moved from the University of Florida to Arizona State University in 2016. And at the time, I kind of knew that I wanted to start a new company to be devoted to developing myxoma virus to clinical trials, uh, but that to be its only platform. Because I had tried company strategies before of just licensing the technology in and uh, none of the companies really had the resources to develop it. So I figured I had to have a company that was exclusively devoted to uh, moving this virus to clinical trials. So after I moved to uh, Arizona, I actually bumped into an entrepreneur, a, a person by the name of Steve Potts, 
who uh, had just left a company called Ignita. And uh, so his company got bought out by Roche and uh, he decided that he wanted to uh, enter into a, a different attack for cancer, one that didn't depend upon small molecule drugs. Because one of the things that always frustrated him about the small molecule drugs is that the best ones sometimes work like a miracle, but it, more frequently than not, the cancers come back and now they're drug resistant. <clears throat> and, he, and he wanted to explore technologies that might be different, that might allow for long-term cures, long-term regressions. So he got interested in oncolytic viruses and began sniffing about in Arizona because he was based in Phoenix. So I met Steve. Uh, we sat down and had a chat, and I kind of explained that I was ready and willing and able to start a company from scratch as long as it was, as it was devoted to just myxomavirus uh, and didn't have other things in the portfolio. So he liked the idea, and then he brought in a friend of his named Mike Wood. And Mike is uh, an experienced guy in terms of biotech, uh, the pharma uh, sector. Uh, he has a lot of contacts. He, he knows a lot of potential investors and funding sources. So the three of us decided uh, we would launch the company. We're the co-founders. And we spent about a year going around giving presentations to everyone who would listen in terms of whether or not they would like to invest in this oddball rabbit virus to treat cancer. And eventually, <clears throat> it took a while, a lot of presentations, uh, but we uh, got together a consortium of funders led by a venture fund that, that is affiliated with Boringer Ingelheim. So our lead investor is the BIVF, the Boringer Ingelheim Venture Fund. And <clears throat> together, uh, we looped in investors from Japan, uh, Malaysia, Korea, Europe, and the United States to put together a package. And our Series A package was uh, $25 million, and uh, it will fund us for... Uh, sufficient time and resources to get uh, the virus ready for a clinical trial. So it sounds like you've got a great story and team in place. As this is your second time founding a company, how do you think this time will be different? So uh, Viron uh, was uh, devoted to the exploitation of viral proteins uh, to the clinic. In other words, uh, anti-immune proteins extracted from viruses and then developed into clinical drugs. And one of the, the, the hurdles we had with Viron is that we were first in space. That is to say, no one, we were the first company to be devoted exclusively to using viral proteins as therapeutics. And so <clears throat> while it sounds attractive, it's also risky to investors um, in the sense that it is different than other biologics. It is different than uh, many other competing technologies, uh, in that case, to treat systemic in inflammatory diseases. But in this case, in, in the case of Oncomix, there are a number of oncolytic virus companies out there. A number of viruses have been through the preclinical development and are in clinical trial. And one, in fact, has made it through licensure, uh, the TVAC virus, the herpes simplex virus, uh, from Amgen. And so we had learned a lot from the sector. And 
um, the lessons learned, the things that we needed to do, let's say, better, and the things and the pitfalls we needed to avoid were kind of laid out much better than they were for Viron. So I think uh, we have a more competitive route um, in, in the sense that I think we can be more competitive uh, on the route that we're in for Oncomix, whereas we kind of struggled a bit with Viron to convince the major powers that uh, viral proteins could be therapeutics. In today's world, everyone is convinced that the right oncolytic virus can probably do uh, a very good job in cancer patients, particularly in combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors. It's interesting because Oncomix represents the second time now that myxomavirus has yielded a commercial opportunity. Did you ever imagine that this relatively obscure virus would be harnessed for its translational therapeutic potential? Uh, I would say not only the answer is no, it's a capital N in the word no. Um, when I started my lab in Edmonton in the early 1980s, um, I uh, picked a virus simply because I was interested in it. Uh, I just thought the history of the this virus in rabbits was really fascinating. And uh, so I actually, it took a while to convince granting agencies even to give me grants to study it because it was an obscure virus. No one really cared about rabbits, but I was just fascinated by its biology. And so for 15 years, I kind of lived beneath the radar, um, just doing the, the science that I enjoyed doing and learning about the virus and its molecular characteristics. And finally coming to realize that it had a fascinating biology, in addition to having an amazing compendium of immunomodulatory transgenes encoded in its genome. So I would say I, I was as shocked and surprised as anyone that we turned out to be translational. But I would use it instead as an argument of why fundamental research uh, driven by PIs that are just playing, playing curious <clears throat> about Mother Nature needs to be encouraged, need, needs to be supported, needs to be helped. Because if I'd gone directly into biotech, for example, none of these ideas would have ever happened. It's only in an academic environment where people are free to kind of pursue the science of where it's going that the development of myxomavirus for either proteins or for oncolytics would ever have been possible at all. Do you think it's a bit ironic that the virus family that contains smallpox, which is one of the most lethal viruses in all of human history, is providing tools and insights that may actually help cure cancer? Well, you know, uh, it's also an interesting scientific question. So uh, what you're referring to is the fact that smallpox virus, which is also a pox virus, unlike our virus that's trapped in rabbits, uh, variola virus, the causative agent of smallpox, is trapped in humans. It, can, it has no animal reservoir. It has no animal model other than humans and a very poor model in uh, non-human primates. But it's not a pathogen in any animal except humans. Mm. So that particular virus, as, as we know, uh, has killed more human beings than all other infectious diseases combined. The, the numbers in the billions of humans that have been killed over the past two millennia by smallpox. Uh, but it was wiped out by the worldwide vaccination program in 1980. Uh, or certified uh, eradicated in 1980. 
And now it's just studied uh, kind of as a laboratory creature and only for the purposes of developing drugs and vaccines and diagnostics against smallpox. But the interesting thing is one of the things we've learned about myxomavirus is that the toolkit of anti-immune proteins are exquisitely dovetailed with the rabbit immune system. So some of those molecules are inhibitors of the same immune pathways outside of rabbit, in other words, in humans, but some of them are not. But in terms of the repertoire of genes, it is effectively an encyclopedia of the immune system of the rabbit. On the other hand, uh, smallpox has been trapped in humans for millennia, uh, maybe tens of thousands of years. We don't really know how long. And so the gene products that have been looked at in Varilla are exceedingly good inhibitors of human immune pathways. And I have a suspicion that if we were to sift through all the various gene products of Varilla virus, we would encounter some of the very best modulators of the human immune system on the planet. It's just it, those experiments and, and doing that science is very hard right now, given the stigma that's associate, associated with the virus. In 2000, you joined the WHO's Smallpox Advisory Committee just before 9-11 and the anthrax attacks in 2001. All of a sudden, there was a lot of anxiety around the potential for smallpox to be used as a bioweapon. Do you have any insights on the debate whether we should keep or destroy smallpox? So you're absolutely right. The events of 9-11 and the anthrax attack uh, were transformative. They shocked us all. And I, I don't know any academic who didn't sit back and say, whoa, man, what, what can I do? Because we all kind of felt that our world was undergoing a massive transition, a transformation, and what are we going to do about it? So in my case, uh, my expertise was in pox viruses. So one of the decisions I made was to offer what I've learned in my expertise to be able to help in terms of humankind's potential future responses to uh, biologic warfare and, and bioterrorism. And so I was asked to sit on the, the WHO committee that looks at uh, what do we do with varilla virus, the causative agent of smallpox, which was a pox virus that caused unique disease in humans. It was trapped in humans, uh, very much the way the virus I studied was trapped in rabbits. But the question was, uh, now once the disease was eradicated, what do we do with it? What do we do with the virus? And uh, the decision at the time uh, was made by WHO and, and around the world and in the community, that we shouldn't destroy the virus right away. We should use it as a tool to try and develop protective things to help humankind should the virus ever reappear or should a related virus ever appear in humans and, and cause potentially cause uh, human disease again. So the decision was made that new drugs should be developed, new safer vaccines should be developed, new therapeutics uh, for pox virus-based disease uh, uh, were definitely of interest. New diagnostics were probably needed. And so this began decades of research around the world, mostly 
in terms of live virus was only allowed in two places on the planet, one in Atlanta and the other at uh, Novosibirsk in Russia. And the, one of the jobs of the committee was to oversee the work being done with live virus and to make sure it was focused on the, the agenda of vaccine drugs and, and diagnostics. And at the same time, the argument raged and still rages to this day in some way. What do we do with the live virus? Uh, we're now coming to the point where um, most of the key things that we wanted to do with live virus that we thought at the time uh, have been accomplished. There are now new drugs. There are safer vaccines. We're still not advanced that much in diagnostics as much as we could have been, but, but some advances have been made. And now the, the question again is, should the stocks of virus be destroyed or not? And I don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, I think the way the WHO works is it gives votes to the assembly nations, the WHA, uh, and, and it's a vote of that assembly that will determine whether or not the, the virus is uh, destroyed in, in, in the future. And I'm not exactly sure how it's going to play out itself. So it's the 40th anniversary of the eradication of smallpox. Could I get your thoughts on the significance of this achievement? Yeah, it's quite amazing that in 1980, uh, humankind uh, got rid of the worst pathogen known to humankind in history. Uh, billions of humans were killed by the virus that causes smallpox, a uh, varilla virus. And its eradication was done by a worldwide vaccination program aided and assisted by the WHO. It's amazing how many people have forgotten everything to do with the disease, with the eradication, and the fact that vaccination is what rid the planet of this disease. Uh, we're living in a world where there are so many uh, fears and deniers about uh, the values of vaccines and vaccination, that it's worth remembering that nobody has to fear of getting and dying of smallpox anymore. Uh, humankind has eradicated it. And when I think about uh, the 40th um, kind of anniversary of the certification of, of, of the eradication of smallpox, I'm kind of thinking if we look, you know, uh, over the past 100 years or 200 years, what, what, what has humankind done uh, uh, for public health? There are so many things that have happened, so many discoveries, so many, you know, uh, advances. But if, if I were to think, what are the top two triumphs of public health in human history? One would be uh, the development of antibiotics, which uh, uh, rid uh, a whole swath of killing bacterial diseases off of a large, of, a large portion of humankind. And the second was the eradication of smallpox by the worldwide vaccination program that rid the world of really such an incredible scourge. So I look back on 40 years and think, let's not forget the triumph that it was. It really is a masterful success story that humankind waged on itself. So let's not forget it and let's celebrate it. Couldn't agree more. So just to switch gears, you mentioned John Bell as a catalyst in putting you onto oncolytic viruses. 
How important have collaborations and sharing ideas been in shaping your career and your science? Well, I would say uh, interactions with others have has been major. <clears throat> the way science is now done, there's no one person who can get a handle on any field. Uh, there's just too much to know, too much to learn. A single brain just can't handle it all. So consequently, if, if you're going to make progress, you need to do it with people, with other people that have got different skill sets. So remember, uh, when we first got the idea of trying myxoma virus as an oncolytic, I had no cancer experience. We had no cancer models in the lab. If we'd been relying just upon ourselves, we never would have tested it properly uh, to see whether or not it could be an oncolytic. It really took the lab and the resources and the knowledge of my collaborator, Peter Forsyth in Calgary, to allow us to get to that study done and to realize we were onto something. And I would say that everything uh, that has happened in my career, nothing has happened with me sitting in a garage staring at the ceiling. It's all happened by talking to people, reading their work, thinking, interacting with grad students and postdocs, talking to other people, giving seminars, listening to other people's seminars. Uh, science is an ongoing, particularly progress in science, is an ongoing contact sport. And I cannot imagine uh, doing science without the interaction and collaborations with, with many, many others. So speaking of people you've worked with, Karen Mossman, an alumnus of your lab who is now at McMaster University, was recently in the news for having isolated SARS-CoV-2. It seems a lot of virologists are weighing into this pandemic and making it personal. Have you been following the developments around COVID and are you planning to get involved? Yeah, so uh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I, I think every certainly every virologist and, and probably most scientists in the biological sector are paying really close attention to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and, and COVID-19, the disease that it causes. So it, 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 it is a major event it has caught the attention of everyone. It has caught the attention of me. And uh, I've also been paying attention to the various efforts uh, that are happening uh, around, basically around the world to develop drugs and vaccines and diagnostics and therapeutics. And I myself uh, have gotten into the fray. So uh, one of the things that you probably know about myxoma virus is that in a rabbit, the immune system just basically is inactivated. It, it cannot get rid of the virus and the virus assumes complete ascendancy over the immune system. But you put this virus into mice or humans, now the virus is crippled, it's recognized by the immune system. In fact, it's exceedingly immunogenic platform. Uh, the the uh, immune pathways in mice and humans recognize this virus really fast, mobilize quickly and basically blot it out. So that, that's some of the uh, features that you want in a good vaccine. You want a, a vaccine platform that's immunogenic, and you like to be able to manipulate it. And so we are looking at whether or not we can express what are called VLPs uh, out of the myxoma virus backbone to see if we can convert myxoma into a COVID vaccine by having it express phenotypically uh, um, identical virus particles to the uh, uh, true SARS-CoV-2 
except they're not infectious. They, they, they would have no viral RNA in them. Hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm, and and there are many, many. You you could probably talk to fifty virologists, and and you will get fifty ideas of what could be done for uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so that just happens to be my idea uh, kind of right now. What are your predictions for this virus? Are you worried? Uh, I am worried. Um, the I, I'm pretty sure uh, that we will uh, have some therapeutics uh, that so many people are testing drugs that I can't believe none of them will work. The vaccine... It could happen fast. It could happen slow. We won't know if any of these vaccines that are being developed will protect or, heaven forbid, make the disease worse until we're in people because we can't model it in animals. We, we can't really uh, surrogate it other than to do human clinical trials. So I'm a little bit worried that the vaccine is going to take much longer to get the right one that is effective and will provide protection and isn't dangerous. I can tell you that everyone I know involved in it is working day and night on this, but some things are unknowable until actually they're put into human clinical trial. I think that we will end up with a COVID COV2 vaccine, I, I hope, but it may take a while. And during that while, uh, this is going to be a very difficult disease. We're not testing nearly enough. Apparently, um, non-symptomatic people can shed it and transmit it. And that's kind of like the nightmare. So it's going to make the public health measures harder. Uh, we may be in lockdowns and in isolation for longer than anyone wants, including me. But uh, I, I just see this being a major problem for many countries having terrible impacts on economy and people's health. So I'm going to focus myself on trying to help efforts to get, you know, vaccine, you know, developed and properly tested and then spread, uh, like basically distributed as much as possible. Before we wrap up, can I ask you to reflect on what you might consider your greatest or proudest career achievement? Well, uh, I consider my greatest life accomplishment my family. Kids, grandkids, uh, the, the, I just can't think of anything better um, than uh, being their dad and their granddad. But professionally, I, I, I take a lot of pride in taking a virus that no one cared about really and studied it and then just kept studying it for the sake of curiosity. You know, sometimes I, I, I wonder how odd I am for doing that, but that's kind of the person I am. Uh, I, I love to have had the opportunity to get a fascination about something and then just let mother nature tell me what's going on. And I've had this great fortune of being associated with hundreds of people that I've been able to infect with that kind of curiosity. And collectively, we've learned all kinds of things about Mother Nature 
just as it's played out in this one little obscure virus um, that we studied because I thought it would be so neat to ask Mother Nature about that one little bug. And I'm so glad I did. We'll wrap up there, Grant, but I want to thank you for joining me today via Zoom to share your scientific path as a virologist and as an entrepreneur. I really appreciate you sharing your story and advice and hope we can do this again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bruce. Uh, And like everyone, uh, stay healthy and stay safe. You too. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Grant McFadden on this episode of the Science to Business Network podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Science to Business Network, please visit our website at www.s2bn.org. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at bruce.seat at s2bn.org. That's b-r-u-c-e dot s-e-e-t at s2bn.org. Thanks for listening.